This is the Real Estate Shop, where each episode will bring you a top industry expert to share their current programs or projects that are making an impact in our communities today. Be sure to check us out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Welcome, Chad, uh, to the Real Estate Shop. Appreciate you coming on to uh, give us an update on uh, the debt market from the agency side of affordable housing. Uh, before we jump in, I just want to kind of do some context for the younger kids that are out there that are listening. You know, Chad and I, we actually hooked up at a conference, man. I want to say it was 2018 in Miami. And, you know, the moral of the story is, you know, you make that one meeting, you stay in touch, you know, with the brother over the years, you know, we've been trying to do some deals, you know, podcast wasn't even on the table. So now, you know, Kirby and I have a podcast and, and lo, lo and behold, bam, here's Chad. So, you know, word to the wise, you know, when you work, work these connections, man, just stay in touch because you never know where it's going to, going to take you to. But uh, so just to get started, Chad, you know, how did you get started in the industry and, and what was your background? Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Steve. Thanks for having me. And and yeah, man, you kind of took me took me through a little walk down memory lane. Um, yeah, I, I remember that conference. It was actually, I think, at the uh, at the Pelican at the restaurant on the water yeah. there. So exactly. glad we connected. Um, but yeah, no. So look, I I got my start in the business back in uh, 2011. Um, you know, I can tell people. I mean, it really. You know, I think it really took a downturn right, um, for an industry that had been kind of red hot um, running for so long, right, through the, you know, early, mid-2000s, kind of post the dot-com bubble, and then obviously running up to, you know, the Great Recession of 08. Um, you know, I was I was in New York. Uh, I had finished up school at Columbia, and you know, I was, was working um, down on Wall Street and kind of in the equity research space, and you know, had a uh, a close friend and fraternity brother who knew um, someone at what was, you know, then my former shop, uh, Centerline Capital Group. And, um, you know, I've been kind of looking for some ways to get into the real estate and structural real estate finance world, um, in particular, you know, in particular kind of the multifamily space. And uh, Centerline happened to be an agency lender and, you know, got connected uh, with someone in HR um, who happened to actually be a Black woman. And so she was uh, very helpful and, and instrumental in kind of pushing my resume, you know, internally and, and pushing for me to, you know, get an opportunity just to interview. And I think roughly about seven or eight interviews later, um, I actually ended up securing a position. So started in New York as an analyst, cut my teeth um, in the agency world and, you know, just kind of worked my way up the food chain, um, you know, saw that company go through several iterations uh, via acquisitions. And uh, my travels took me from New York to coming down to Miami to help launch an office for, um, you know, the next kind of parent firm that had owned the company and, you know, stayed with them until recently, um, until last year, where I uh, made a move and and now sit at my current firm at M&T Road to Capital Corp. And uh, I run Florida and kind of Southeast expansion for the, uh, for the agency and mortgage banking business. Nice. So uh, tell us like exactly what type of work do you do? Um, I know for the benefit of our folks, of course, I know that you're in the debt space, uh, heavily involved with the agency loans, but kind of walk us through 
you know, exactly it is what you do on a day to day basis, how you find clients and that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So on the most basic level, my role is, is like you said, to originate debt for the agencies and the agencies are Fannie, Freddie and HUD. So what that means is, is simply I am, you know, going out and sourcing potential deals where we can provide the senior loan, um, mainly in the multifamily space. And that is, you know, across affordable housing market rate. And then the agencies also play in, you know, the senior housing space, manufactured housing, student housing, et cetera. Um, but yeah, essentially my job is to develop those relationships, um, whether they be, you know, folks who've kind of gotten in the business and you're going a little bit and, you know, may not be the largest borrower to, you know, the high net worth individuals, all the way up to the institutions who on a day-to-day -day, um, develop, own, operate, you know, multifamily across the country. Got it. And, and, and just to show you how small a world is, Kirby, jump in. I know you, you've had your own relationship with, with Chad, you know, being the market study guy. Um, kind of let everybody know how you and, and Chad hooked up as well, just to give folks a broader sense of how you know, close and tight niche uh, this industry really is. I Chad at a conference as well. I think it was NHNRA in, in Florida at the Breakers. Um, and I, I, you know, we, we exchanged emails prior to that. We talked about some deals, um, but never met in person. So, and Chad lives in Miami. And so I said, Hey, would you happen to be going to this, this conference? And he said, yeah, I'll be there. I got a lot of stuff going on, but I'll be, I'll pop in and I got some meetings lined up already at the conference. So, um, you know, let's do it. So we, um, you know, we both met at the event and I had a chance to connect and, um, you know, our, we, we still talk probably on a regular basis uh, now about deal flow and, and things he's seen in the market and things I'm seeing. So, um, you know, it's, it's been amazing to see how, how both of us have kind of grown since that conference. And, and we, we talk about stuff beyond business. Like we talk about managing a household, you know, Ch Chad has three, three kids. I've got a, a young daughter and, and uh, working on her second now. So, you know, it's 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 grown beyond just a business, so it's it's beautiful to see. Absolutely, and now, Steve, I'll, I'll add one quick further point to that, real quick. Kevin's ex exactly right, and um, you know, even for the introductions that you know we've made for one another, you know, still talk to folks from you know potential sponsors he's introduced. You know, I know some of the folks I'm introduced to him. And even on top of that, you know, currently your business partner is, a, is an old uh, colleague as mine as well from my first shop, you know, in the business from that, that firm sent along. So yeah. I think it's, you know, it lends itself to say that, you know, good people in this business definitely tend to stick together. And I think again, Steve, to your earlier point of, you know, just how small of a business it is as well. Exactly, because the crazy thing is, like Kirvin's other you know, business partner at the time was a client of mine when I was back at the resident group in the early 2000s. So when he told me that he kind of connected with her and she's a partner, you know, in a historic test credit space, I was like, this is, this is really crazy. So it's a really, really tight space. Uh, you know, one of the things that we, we do this podcast, uh, Chad, to give folks who are aspiring to be, you know, developers or getting to, to the business, um, a little insight from developers and professionals um, from your aspect 
and I know you deal a lot with sponsors, so you're on top of the whole underwriting. You know, what do you see as the challenges to some of the, the smaller folks who are trying to get into business? I mean, obviously, we know that sometimes they'll have to joint venture with a larger firm to overcome those challenges. But you sitting on the debt side, you know, what do you see that the challenges are for folks who are trying to break in? Yeah, no, absolutely, man. I mean, listen, I think it's, you know, the the main hot topic that has been for some time, and I think we'll always, well, not all, I, I mean, look, we hope it's not always, but I, but I think that will persist for some time is, uh, is always access to capital, right? Um, when you look at, you know, sponsors who have been successful in this business, typically they have, if, if we're talking about on the development side, right, they typically have acquired the development side at a great basis. And what do you need to do in order to acquire that development side at a great basis, right? Typically you've bought the land all cash, or you may have some low levered financing on it. But the bottom line is, is that you had access to that capital, whether it be debt or equity, in order to you know act quickly and act appropriately, right? There's one thing to be able to you know buy whether it's land or you know even an existing building, but it's having the capital that is not only available to you but also accretive to the business overall, right? And and what do I mean by that is that it's not you know overly expensive expensive capital or capital that's not flexible and doesn't allow you to be nimble in the business, right? And that's the development front. And, you know, even on the, on the acquisition standpoint, um, it's the same thing, right? If you're going to buy an existing building, you know, typically you're getting some type of loan from someone like me who's going to do, you know, the first mortgage, the senior debt, right? And then you've got to come to the table with equity, um, you know, particularly for sponsors of color, it's, you know, having the equity to be able to write that check, right? So, or having access to good partners who will be able to help you write that check. And oftentimes, um, you know, those same sponsors who like that access to, you know, that capital and flexible capital, they also, um, you know, need someone who's going to be able to sign on the loan guarantees, right? Because we have net worth and liquidity requirements for our deals. Um, so I think it's the, you know, the intersection of those two things, which I think is has been the most prohibitive, um, you know, historically speaking. Got it. Um, you know, what people uh, realize, a lot of folks you know, know what we're talking about when we refer to agency loans. For those that don't, you know, we're really talking about uh, multifamily buildings that are being financed with low-income housing tax credits. And, you know, obviously we've got the 9% ones that are competitive, um, you know, and the 4%, which are uh, tied into taxes and bonds. Your job is that you handle both sides. There's debt for both of those type of products. Um, when someone comes to you, how do you kind of guide them through, you know, you might be better off doing a HUD loan or a Fannie product or a Freddie product. Um, how do you get them to that point on what's the right uh, product for them? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think it's really about understanding, you know, what you're looking to get out of the deal in the transaction, right? Are you looking 
to get a deal done that's going to be developed, you're going to sell that development. Typically, that isn't the case, right, with affordable housing. And I always like to open it up, too, because the agencies, and when we refer to the agencies, to your point, Steve, we're referring to, you know, Fannie and Freddie and HUD are really pushing what we call mission-driven business, right? And that's where the rents at these properties are, you know, at 80% of the area median income or less, right? We know traditionally uh, an affordable project typically has what's called a set-aside or units that are set aside, right? Um, typically it's been 40% of the project at 60% AMI less or, you know, 20% at 50, et cetera. And now we're, you know, pushing up to 80. Um, I, you know, looking at the deal, like I said, it, if this sponsor is looking for, you know, the highest possible leverage they can get, then yeah, maybe it's one of our forward agency products, right? That'll potentially underwrite to leverage up to 90% with a lower debt cover. But what you have today with where interest rates have gone, typically you're not getting to that, you know, that higher leverage. Um, in addition to that, you know, you have the HUD product, right? Which is, oftentimes a longer term, but also um, in some instances allows you to get a, lo a longer amortization um, than Fannie or Freddie. Now, you know, Fannie and Freddie has been open to looking at longer amortizations, but with the HUD product, it's, you know, it's typically programmatic, right? If you, if you build a deal with what's called the HUD 221D4, you know, it's, it's why I tell people it's a 40, you know, 42 year term, essentially, right? A construction, period with a, uh, a permanent term. And so, you know, you also have a 40-year amortization with that. And what does that mean? That just simply means that, you know, the payment you got to make on the loan is going to be lower than if you had a, you know, call it a 35 or a 30-year or even, you know, in some instances, a 25-year amortization. Right. And and that all goes to benefit your bottom line when you're underwriting the deal, because, again, back to what you want to get out of it. It also depends on your capital partners. Right. What type of returns do you need to deliver to them? Is this a deal, like I said, that you're going to hold, you know, for the next 15 years through a compliance period? Or is it a, you know, a workforce deal that you bought and, you know, you need to exit the deal in five to seven years? So I think it's really understanding, you know, the return profile and what you have to accomplish with the deal, which then will dictate what products that we look at. And the time to close, Chad? Yeah, time, time to close is, is definitely important as well. You know, Fannie Freddie deals, I mean, we like to say, you know, a standard kind of 45 to 60 day close, um, you know, HUD deals typically take a little longer to close, right? Um, if it's, you know, development deal, you could be looking at, you know, a 12 plus month timeline, 12 to 15 months. If it's a refinance scenario, you know, you may be in that four to six month range. Um, yeah, and and to your point, your, your point, Kervin, I mean, it just really, again, kind of depends on that business plan and how you need to execute. Have, have you guys made any changes because of the current environment to how you're looking at the market and looking at borrowers? Uh, look, man, we're, you know, we're obviously doing our best. I mean, uh, right now with the current environment, I think, you know, a lot of the deals are being driven 
by, um, again, kind of those metrics I mentioned, right? Deals that have what we call higher affordability, right? Not necessarily that they're, you know, a lie tech or tax credit project, right? It could be a project that has, you know, rental restrictions with a project-based HAP contract or, you know, a sponsor could be coming in to, um, you know, buy a workforce market rate project and they're going to take it, you know, into a, a deeper affordable scenario where, you know, they're going to look for some type of tax abatement, et cetera, um, to basically, you know, increase the returns on the deal. Um, so, you know, we are out pushing for best terms for sponsors. And I mean, listen, I'm, I'm working on a deal right now where they've got some, um, you know, uh, voucher tenants at the property. And um, we're trying to get a 35-year amortization versus a typical 30-year amortization for a workforce deal, right? So, you know, we're pushing where we can. We're trying to, you know, get longer um, interest only when deals are coming in at lower leverage. And, um, you know, for those uh, forward committed loans that we're doing, what that means is, you know, someone goes out, they get an allocation of credits and they're going to build a, uh, a light tech project. You know, we have a, a forward commitment loan product that will essentially lock simultaneously with your uh, construction loan. So, you know, trying to be nimble where we can there too. Like I said, push it for that longer amortization, et cetera. Um, yeah, but I mean, in, in today's climate, man, it's it's really just about being, you know, prudent and underwriting and, um, you know, trying to push where we can. Do you see any changes in the liquidity requirement at all? How much people have to come to the table? Uh, I mean, for the for the most part, it has been status quo. Um, you know, we are trying to, you know, mitigate. I'll say where someone may have a, a slight shortfall, we're trying to, you know, mitigate that with structuring the deal, um, you know, but as far as kind of, I guess, for lack of better words, what's in black and white in the guy, right, has not changed. But, you know, we are trying to be helpful where we can. I mean, look, you know, Steve and I were talking about another project that we're working on where, you know, our sponsor was working on having, you know, the potential tax credit equity partner sign on a deal. And, and I mean, listen, they, you know, that sponsor didn't meet the typical requirements, but, you know, we were trying to be, um, you know, helpful in the sense of saying, hey, you know, kind of given the experience level here and that they've successfully executed on some projects that, you know, maybe we'd be willing to lean in, right, on a on a construction loan that was kind of, you know, it was it was in our footprint. The sponsor was in our footprint, right, as a bank. Um, while we didn't have a tax credit um, equity need in that particular market, um, because it was in footprint, we were, you know, trying to be reasonable and and be open to say, look, if you elect to take this, you know, forward committed product um, with our construction loan, and we know that we don't have an open-ended construction loan, but some of the other things that went along with the deal, right? Like there was a developer opportunity fund that was going to help with some liquidity shortfall during the construction period, et cetera. Like I said, the tax credit investor was going to look to sign on the deal. So, you know, we were willing to say, hey, yeah, you know, we'll, we will kind of stretch a little bit here um, for construction and in an effort to help capitalize the transaction. So it's it's really curving kind of, 
you know, I guess in, in summary and in short, there is no programmatic or, you know, here is the box that we're, you know, we have said, yeah, this is where we're going to kind of change our requirements. It's really just kind of taking a holistic approach and looking at every deal on a one-off basis to say, hey, let's kind of sit down and be thoughtful about this and really kind of understand demand drivers in the market, et cetera. And, you know, do we think this is a, a viable product project if we're going to lean in a little bit? Okay. Sounds good. I know you've been, um, you've been through a number of cycles before uh, in the industry. Um, do, you, do you see developers maybe looking at secondary markets, treasury markets, given the, the current environment to just sustain their business? What changes are you seeing or you expect to, or you, you know, that you've seen in the past? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, this kind of really kind of first cycle, right? I mean, we had a very long expansion with this last cycle, right? Call it from kind of the downturn from, you know, 08, 09. I got in the business in 2011. And I mean, what I can say is, you know, having seen it really kind of come full circle, um, yes, I will tell you that I'm seeing developers, you know, owner operators, acquisition guys, et cetera, you know, change their business plan. Um, one to your point, yes, absolutely. I've seen sponsors that have, you know, moved into secondary tertiary markets, right. Where they, you know, see value. I was like, I was just talking to somebody about a deal in Greer, South Carolina, um, the other day, right. Um, you know, and, and markets that historically have not, you know, come up and, you know, you've seen the emergence of, um, you know, other markets kind of move to the forefront between, you know, Nashville and Tennessee and, and obviously the Carolinas have, you know, gotten a lot of uh, attention of late and, you know, obviously Texas and Florida has, has been there, but what I, what I remind people of to a lot is that, you know, as hot as Florida is and, you know, people focus on it. I came here to Florida in 2014, right? Prior to that, the agencies had not, ex you know, allowed us to extend credit um, on a programmatic basis over 65% leverage, right? Because of the, the historical kind of boom and bust in Florida. So, you know, that's that's recent, right? Like eight, nine years ago, when you think about how long, you know, we've been in this business and folks have been doing business. Uh, so even off the top, I have to remind people that, you know, you have a lot of projects in Florida that are, you know, just going to start to cycle because, um, you know, kind of the, the, the requirements and lending levels change for Florida. Um, and then to the, you know, to your other point, I mean, yeah, with developers, I mean, I think it's about, you know, costs, right? Land costs have, uh, you know, been driven up in a lot of markets. I mean, especially we've seen it here in Florida, but even others throughout the country. So it really kind of, you know, comes to a point of where you have to say, okay, you know, what does replacement costs look like? Um, does it make more sense to acquire an existing asset versus develop? And, and then I think on the opposite spectrum of that um, and kind of something that, you know, we see a lot and have to advise sponsors on is that, you know, as borrowers are chasing yield, oftentimes what that means as well is that you got to look for older products. 
right? So you have sponsors that are chasing, you know, 70s, 60s vintage product because I think, you know, kind of 80s and, and early 90s have been the focus a little bit more, but, you know, 90s didn't need as much and it was still kind of expensive for some time. So when you're chasing 60 and 70s, you know, vintage product, typically you're going to have very large CapEx budgets, right? We're talking north of 20, 25,000, you know, adored. So, you know, sponsors are having to make a business decision to say, is it worth, you know, chasing that product or yes, do I just go look at, you know, listen, is it applying to an RFP or is it just, you know, finding a site and, and chasing competitive credits and 9% or, you know, do we just kind of by right take 4% and, and see how we can make a deal work by getting, you know, other incentives from the you know, state or local municipality, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there's a lot more thought and, um, underwriting that has to go into business plans and deals today, um, right. To be sound. Um, and, and I think that will, I think that will continue for a little bit, right. As, as we navigate the volatility in the market. I know Kerbin, um, network, not worth and liquidity requirements. And I know that kind of varies on a deal to deal basis, but it's a common question that we get from folks who are trying to really break in. Is there a rule of thumb for net worth and liquidity? I, I know it's case by case, but is, is there like a generality that you can apply when you're looking at sponsors? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the general rule of thumb, right, is typically you want a net worth equal to the loan amount and a post-closing liquidity, right? So not assuming that they're going to cash out on some other deal and add it, like kind of post-closing liquidity of 10%. Um, you know, so net worth equal to the loan amount post-closing 10%. I mean, listen, there are some exceptions, right? I mean, we have instances where you have, you know, nonprofits who are in the business of operating and owning real estate and have great track records. And, you know, everyone here, I think, knows that typically nonprofits operate at some slim margins sometimes and slim budgets. So they may not meet that function. And then that's where... You know, sometimes we've we've seen a tax credit investor sign on a deal as well, or, you know, they've had a, a decent network and liquidity and it may not be equivalent to the loan or hit those metrics and where we have to, you know, kind of file and look for some type of exception. Um, but that said, I mean, you, you know, while, while we want to try to be helpful, I mean, we do look for, you know, uh, I would say a you know, a, a net worth and liquidity um, relative to the deal. And that kind of aligns with, you know, either their overall portfolio and leverage, right? Like we just, we try to make the case holistically um, if they don't meet those exact requirements. Chad, you mentioned the uh, 1960s, 1970s product. Do you see a lot of developers now looking at like historic tax credits and energy tax credits to support their capital stock? Uh, to be honest with you, Kermit, I don't play a lot in the historic energy tax credit space. I do know that sponsors are looking for those alternatives to fill the gap. Um, I, I, funny enough, I was actually looking at a project here in, in Fort Myers, and they were looking at historics on the project because um, there was some uh, a retail component, and it was a, a historic building, like a, I think a mill or something along those lines, and they wanted to kind of preserve 
the facade and the, the building itself and then attach the multi to it on the side. So I, I do know that sponsors are seeking those, you know, additional dollars. And, and I mean, listen, we've seen the emergence of, you know, the pace financing and the ground lease world. I mean, what I would tell, you know, your listeners is that on a relative basis, a lot of, um, aside from the historic tax credits, right, like kind of the pace and the, the ground rate stuff and, you know, things like that are, are just a little bit newer to the front. So don't be, you know, frustrated when um, lenders kind of, you know, either dismiss projects because those, I know, I know they look like good avenues to help capitalize deals. And I think in some instances they are. And I think, as it just becomes more prevalent, um, I think we'll start to see it, you know, become a little more constant in, uh, in deals. You made a good point about C-Pace. I, I was almost not going to really talk about it, but there is, uh, you know, a little confusion that I was actually trying to clear up. So this is relevant. Like, from what I understand, like, HUD products won't use C-Pace. I believe Fannie may not. I understand Freddie can, but they either need regulations or regulations are being drafted. You know, but you got like a Naveen out there who's got billions of dollars of capital, you know, ready to deploy for C-Pace. What, what are your thoughts on C-Pace? Um, and, you know, am I accurate that HUD doesn't use it, Fannie doesn't use it, but Freddie may? Uh, I, I think you're pretty spot on, Steve. Um, well, I, I have heard that HUD has done a handful of deals. And when I say handful, I'm, I'm literally referring to counting on one hand. Um, and I think that number has slightly grown. So I think I think they have. You're right. Fannie has not looked at pace to my knowledge um, at this standpoint. And yes, Freddie does have some guidance around it. Um, but again, I, just like I mentioned, I think, you know, it's always about adoption speed, right? So yeah, Freddie, as far as I know, has not closed anything with Pace. Um, and, and listen, I, I think it's a it's a bigger front, right? I know sponsors oftentimes get frustrated because, um, you know, we've looked at some Pace stuff. And to my knowledge, um, I had, I, they were not my deals. I have not done them, but I do know that M&T has uh, done some loans where Pace has been um, in the senior stack um, on the construction standpoint. But I, what I will tell you what you're saying, and I think you'll hear this from the, the Pace folks as well, too, is that what you're seeing is that senior leverage is coming down when the Pace is coming in um and or you know pace can kind of be used to you know sell down effectively um on the deals because of the fact when we do have to look to refi because the agencies you know haven't become widely you know adopters of it yet you've got to get that pace out of there right and and and, and listen this is you know no no talking points from MT, you know nothing from them i mean kind of my own thoughts around it right is because we're we're talking about a big animal right we're, and when i say a big animal we're talking about a you know two groups Fannie and Freddie that are you know doing 70 plus billion a year in financing with a model that's kind of been tried and true proven and tested, right, with securitization, you know, Freddie has his case series, you know, Fannie securitizes deals one-off that are sold. So when you start talking about something like a pace that doesn't, 
for lack of better words, doesn't necessarily sit in front of the senior, but it is being paid because it comes in like an assessment on the tax bill, right? Like you, there, there's a lot of regulation around that. And, you know, like I say, you have structuring with the securitizations. There's probably ways it needs to be reported. So I think it's just, it's really going to take some time uh, for the, you know, the adaptation of it to the marketplace. So I would just tell, you know, tell people to continue to get smart about it, um, you know, and build a knowledge base around it, because I do think eventually it, it will become, you know, more widely used. Got it. And um, one last question for me, and I know Kerman has one more. Uh, in, the, in the industry itself, both you know, it's not probably particularly too affordable, but we're seeing a lot of programs prop up for black and brown developers. Uh, I'm seeing it on the developer side where shops like, you know, Enterprise will come in and they want to be a co-developer for you know, an upstart black or brown firm. Uh, we just did a podcast with NEF and they have a program as well where they'll, you know, backstop a guarantee. Is, is Do you see any of that going on in there with some of the debt? <laughs> there uh, in terms of uh, programs uh, targeted for black and brown developers? Yeah, yeah, man, definitely, definitely seeing, you know, folks make strides. Um, you know, like I said, we're, what we're doing, looking at deals, we're trying to do the same as well, too. Um, you know, I have friends who have, you know, gone out and, you know, they, they kind of already had their own shops where they raise funds and, They've been able to partner with, you know, some big, you know, big names in the industry um, and or, you know, kind of family offices that have said, hey, look, we want to be, you know, impactful in, in a way um, that'll help you grow your business. And, and what is that? Right. We need the I, I use the pun since we've had gas shortages here in Florida. Right. They need the gasoline behind them. Uh, really, right? They kind of built out the business. They've worked for, you know, some of the most reputable names in the industry, um, right? When you're talking about, you know, large acquisitions, you know, EQR and Blackhawks and Blackstone World, et cetera. And so now they've kind of gone on and launched these platforms. So we, you know, we are seeing um, some movement in that arena. Um, it seems like, you know, uh, every now and then I'm seeing someone who's joined kind of an impact capital, you know, either lending or equity shop. And, and, and look, I, I think like anything else, again, it takes a very long time, um, you know, to, to put these things together, to develop a business plan, to allocate the dollars, to create an execution around it. Because at the end of the day, it's still about ROE, right? It's return on what the equity is. So at, look, I would love to see us farther along in the space. I think we're making good strides. I think, you know, it will continue um, to move. And I and I think, you know, folks like, um, you know, the, the real estate shop and, you know, what you and Kerwin are doing are, you know, being the beacons of light that have to continue to put a spotlight where um, there is room for improvement. Right. And there is the ability to um, not only invest in, um, you know, BIPOC minority, to, 
throw some other acronyms out there, but invest in people, um, you know, who may not fit the typical status quo of being a portfolio manager or allocator, asset manager, and or developer, sponsor, acquisition group. I'm trying to kind of capture everything here. But, um, you know, we're seeing it. We're seeing them emerge. And, and I think we just have to continue to, uh, you know, make sure the conversation stays at the forefront um, and that it just it, it doesn't become something that, um, you know, just kind of becomes, oh, you know, OK, the norm or, hey, we tried and we were not successful um, because we do know that real estate is a slow business and it, it takes time. Got it. So, Kirby. Take it home, man. Uh, appreciate it, Chad. Um, always good talking to you. Uh, I think Kevin's going to wrap us up. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Chad, I think this has been really, really informative. Any any last comments about the way you think the market's going to go, given the current conditions, or any advice you have for uh, borrowers that are looking for capital um, right now? Yeah. I mean, look, the, the big thing that I will, I, I will always say is, Look, if you got a deal and the numbers work for you, close. Close your deal. Because um, if, if one thing recent times haven't shown you is that, you know, we don't know what, you know, what could happen, right? I mean, yeah, the interest rate volatility is going to continue to persist in the market for a little bit. Um, I mean, listen, look, I, I wish I had the crystal ball and, and candidly, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. We might be doing this interview on my boat because I would know everything that was going to happen. And I probably would have picked the the mega millions with the with the uh, mega mega plier long ago. Um, but listen, close your deal if you got a deal that's in front of you. Yes, rates are up. Historically, rates are not at a level that is crazy, you know. More seasoned, you know, older developers will tell you, hey, I was doing deals, you know, when rates were eight, nine, 10%, right? So I, while I understand that, you know, cost of living is higher now, you know, cost to build is higher now, et cetera. Um, listen, we, we can figure out how to make this work and, you know, understand that lenders and other folks, we're reactionary, right? We have to react to the market um, and where it is in order to ensure that, you know, we don't create the issues um, that do come with quantitative easing, right, and, and cheap capital. I think everyone got accustomed to, you know, much lower rates and spreads. And, and listen, I, I think some headwinds that we're going to face as, you know, many properties come up for refinance, recapitalization, and there's going to be, you know, there's going to be some shortfalls there. You know, anytime you have rates that, you know, have risen, you know, three, 400 basis points, um, it's going to be challenging, right? Um, you know, I was talking to somebody, funny enough, about this, you know, the other day. Um, you know, I started with m last July and, you know, rates, I think, kind of on, a, on an agency front, I mean, especially in affordable housing space, are probably... Uh, overall, 85 to 90 bips, um, kind of for your typical kind of fixed capital markets, you know, seven, 10 year deal, right? If you're just acquiring a deal in an extended use period or something like that and just getting your standard, you know, seven to 10 year loan. Um, but that said, on the, you know, kind of structured arm and adjustable rate mortgage front, you know, rates are up, you know, 400 basis points. 
you know, we were doing seven year arm deals at like, you know, three and a quarter. Um, you know, today those same deals are pricing, you know, seven and a quarter and or higher, right? So yeah, rates are up and we know what that means for values. They, they're gonna need to come in as cap rates expand. But, um, you know, bottom line, if you got an execution that works and it hits your deals and everyone's happy, close your deal because you don't want to be the guy that's, you know, sitting next to me saying, oh, man, well, you know, our next guy closed and, you know, he got a rate 50 bits cheaper than me that you wait two days later and you could have closed that X and now you close at a rate that is, you know, 50 bips wider um, because there was some swing in the marketplace. So, you know, I think we're going to face, in, in short, I think we're going to continue to face some headwinds with interest rate volatility. Um, I'm hoping that it will settle here soon, but obviously we got to wait for the data to come out um, from the Fed and, you know, other smart folks that are doing a lot of modeling. Um, and I think once we have that, I, I do expect kind of the volume and velocity of business to pick up, right? I mean, I, kind of the consensus that I've heard is that it's going to be on the you know back half of the year and third and fourth quarter that they expect to see the acquisition market open up a little bit, which I think in turn will you know make way for uh, for everything else, right? You know, less competition of folks who's trying to pivot to development, chase yield, et cetera. So, you know, I. Listen, the, the bottom line is we've always gotten through it. We'll get through it. You know, we just got to stay the course. And and we know that, you know, underwriting has been more sound um, this time around. But there still remains to be, you know, some distress when you've got rates that are, like I said, up, you know, 400 plus basis points. So remains to be seen. But I think everyone should just stay positive. Another day at the shop, content they can't get anywhere else.